Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, the host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Mary Minton and Philip Lebion about their new edited volume, Environmental Defenders, Deadly Struggle for Life and Territory, published in 2021 by Routledge as a part of their Explorations in Environmental Studies series. Dr. Mary Minton and Dr. Philip Levion, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, and thank you for, for, for being on the show. And um, we're, we're sure, I'm sure looking forward to the, to the interview today, but before we really dive into into the the meat of the the text i was hoping if you could begin by telling us a bit about your yourselves and your your background um mary how about we we start with you uh sure thanks um i guess i can start by telling the story of how i first started working in the amazon i began working a few decades ago now, two decades ago, um, as an environmental scientist, actually. And uh, I was measuring trees, but I was working where the road was just about to start being paved. And I saw that the trees that I was measuring were probably not going to be standing very soon. And so I really started to transition into more more social issues, more issues around deforestation um, and pressure on on forest resources and landscape change. Um, and so that sort of sparks the beginning of my my journey with this this book, I guess, and seeing the conflicts with soy farmers, seeing the conflicts around ranching and smallholders. Um, and then I can fast forward a bit to uh, 2017. I started working with um, Not One More, which is a collaborating with them as a volunteer, really, but as an organization that supports uh, at-risk environmental defenders. And so we started working and I was supporting their Brazil work. And then I started working with the University of Sussex right around 2018 and was funded by the British Academy to start a project called Atmospheres of Violence, which looked at the experiences of environmental defenders um, in several different countries, including Brazil. 
And that kind of is is where the the research behind my contributions to this book come from. Um, and among, along that journey, uh, met Philippe Levion uh, through one of our collaborators on that bigger project. Um, and we started talking about similar interests and overlapping um, folk, focus foci of our projects. Um, and then, yeah, this, this book stems from those discussions and a conference that we um, supported a session at with the Pollen Political Ecology Network Conference back in 2020, was it? 2020, Philippe, help me if I'm wrong. Um, and, and so we gathered other people outside of our two projects also to contribute different different aspects of the story. Um, and yeah, I think I think my my role as an I'm sort of an academic, but I'm also an activist. So I've most recently left the University of Sussex, and I'm working more of my time with Not One More, um, helping with their Brazil projects and helping with increase the research angle of some of their work. And I think that's probably enough about me for now. I can pass it over um, to Philippe. Perhaps. Thank you, Mary. Yes. So, Philippe Lebillon, yes, I'm a professor at uh, the University of British Columbia, and I'm working there with the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the Department of Geography. Um, so, my journey into this book started uh, many decades ago, I would say probably around three decades ago. Um, I was quite passionate about the environment, having being trained as a as a biologist and being interested also by journalism and a few things like that. And I ended up in, in Cambodia in a country which was going through a, a kind of transition to peace. And um, there was a new government in place and I was passing through and uh, I popped by the uh, Ministry of Agriculture, Department of Forestry, and I said, well, maybe, um, you know, I could help a little bit with... Uh, uh, environmental policies in particular, things like that. And um, they said, yeah, sure, uh, sit down. Um, so I worked with the staff, and initially my focus was very much on creating protected area, etc., which uh, we did. Um, but I quickly realized that um, there was a need to do way more on um, logging in particular and wildlife um, uh, protection. And so... I started um, looking into the reasons why logging was continuing despite uh, interdictions, etc. And at that point, um, I worked a little bit in partnership with uh, Global Witness. Um, and when the time came for me to um, do a PhD, I decided to, to focus on, on that particular topic. Uh, at, at the time, Cambodia was... Uh, Still, still had the Khmer Rouge uh, units along the borders with uh, Thailand in particular. Uh, the government um, was uh, running some pretty uh, dubious deals, etc. And, and a lot of uh, communities um, living in or next to forests were suffering as a result of, of that, uh, losing their trees. Um, and so um, with Global Witness, we run a number of campaigns that was the the first one and then i joined them in the campaign on on blood diamond uh and oil and transparency with the uh, extractive industry transparency initiative um and throughout that journey we realized very often that um you know we were the kind of 
uh, expats coming in, coming out, um, taking some risk, but uh, you know, always having the security of coming back to a home base uh, in London. And uh, we always felt bad by people who were behind and were facing uh, the brunt of the coercion that the government or the companies were imposing on people to, to continue with these extractive uh, models and, and this environmental destruction. I think uh, when I became a prof, I, uh, I, I continued to look a little bit into the work of Global Witness, obviously. And um, in 2012, they started documented documenting um, what they called environmental defenders, people who are really on the front lines and are facing, as I said, the brunt of the repression um, to the point sometimes of, of being killed. A little bit of what has been done, for example, with journalists, etc. So there's a, an important documentation aspect to show the scale of that problem uh, on the part of Global Witness, and they come up with uh, very important reports that brought that to light. Um, so I, a little bit like Mary, I decided to put forward a research project uh, to work on that, help a bit Global Witness. And um, it's at that point that I realized that Mary had her own project. And so uh, we touched base. We met in London and uh, we decided to uh, do some more collaboration. And the book was uh, the result of it. Uh, along the way, we got to meet and know and work uh, with a number of defenders and also people who are kind of uh, scholars, but as well as uh, activists. And that's uh, really uh, a neat crowd to be uh, to be working with. So that's pretty much for me. Well, what an amazing journey you both have had. And thank you so much for for sharing your, your stories. Um, and I, I your, your knowledge and your passion um, come through throughout the throughout the book um and and so let's let's get into um get into to 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 the text now um and you mentioned environmental defenders um would you would you like to kind of define that term um even more as as you do throughout throughout the text well environmental defenders are all sorts of people and not only are they people they're the communities um and so generally the definition is people who take peaceful action to protect the land or the, the ecosystem on which their livelihoods uh, depend, or sometimes, um, you know, just protecting the environment for the sake of the environment itself. Uh, many of these people uh, in practice come from rural communities. Many of them are indigenous people. And they are seeing uh, things that they don't want to see in their neighborhood or they think that those projects will arm them. Or sometimes they can be also looking for land. We have uh, a lot of people who are uh, looking to establish um, you know, agrarian um, livelihoods, kind of homesteading, if you want. And, and they want to do that with their own values. And um, they've got to fight back against people who want to use the land in, in more commercially oriented uh, ways very often. But Maria, I'll let you add to this. I I think you've I think you've covered it really well, Philippe. I think um, one of the one of the chapters of the book go, goes into this quite a lot. Who is you know who is an environmental defender and 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 whether or not that term in and of itself can be sometimes a bit problematic because some of the people who 
are considered or counted in the in the the databases of of killings of environmental defenders might not have seen themselves that way and i think that's one of the things that that comes out perhaps again and again in the discussions we have and in, in parts of the book that it's about for a lot of the people who are classified as environmental defenders from the outside don't see themselves that way because for them it's really about a bigger struggle and a, a struggle for a way of life, uh, a struggle for their communities. Um, so it's not just about individual people um, being leaders or being heroes, but it's it's about a lot of collective action and struggles um, that sometimes get um, under underestimated, perhaps, or, or don't get recorded in a way because if it's the individuals that sometimes get the get the attention. So, I just yeah, maybe just emphasizing that that it's often about much more of a collective social movement and a struggle for for something bigger than just one individual's fight for a forest or for a, a river, for example. Mm-hmm. And maybe just to add a little bit to that, also there is a category that sometimes we call defenders of defenders. And those are people who help and become kind of allies of frontline defenders. And they tend to be like uh, lawyers working for pro bono very often to support these, uh, these communities. They can be journalists who take quite active uh, part in publicizing and mediatizing these things. Uh, you have also a whole area of human rights NGOs a global Witness is one of them. A frontline Defenders is another uh, who are trying to uh, bring concrete ways to uh, protect, advocate for, um, you know, put pressure on the companies uh, uh, that are sometimes behind these schemes, etc. And then you've got a, another um, a set of defenders, and it's a little bit more controversial. It's the professionals, if you want, of environmental protection. So those are the conservation officers, etc., the problem sometimes with these is uh, they are themselves very often imposing uh, certain rules over uh, land use, over uh, uh, you know uh, the treatment of wildlife, etc. And so local communities don't always see themselves uh, as 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 allies of those conservation officers. They can be kind of in opposition to it, uh, but. Um, some people consider that you know, like park wardens are environmental defenders. That's not something we follow very much in the book. We are much closer to you know uh, rural communities that are really there to defend um, you know their own values, their own land, their territories, etc. Not to impose a conservation mode that is exclusive and 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 sometimes extremely brutal. Yeah, thank you for all of that. It was super informative and. Um... I mean, you touch on so much just in in your your dialogue right there, and, and throughout the book, there are so many levels and so many different perspectives and so many different entry points, and 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 the the difference between the individual and the collective, and the effective and the visible and invisible. Um, I, I'm excited to get into into all of it, but but before we really really get there. Um, there are three main parts of the book. Um, the first one is on defenders. The second part is dirty projects, and the third part is green projects. Um, I was wondering if you if you might want to talk about why you decided to to break it down in this way, and and maybe maybe break down the the outline of the book so the listeners can can kind of orient themselves to to how your arguments are are flowing. Mm-hmm. 
So I think for part one in particular, we really wanted the book not to be simply an academic book and not be driven by academics um, in a tr traditional way. Uh, so it was very important to get the voices of environmental defenders first and foremost, and then to reflect on this term. Because as, as we said, many people, they don't see themselves as environmental defenders. They have not heard the term, um, you know. And when we're in discussions with them, they often say, yeah, it's much broader than that. And so it was important to unpack uh, this and put first and foremost, you know, the experiences of uh, these people and those communities uh, so that the readers have a good sense of what is at stake. And I think, uh, you know, starting with uh, Claudelis Santos' um, testimony, as Mari uh, can explain uh, a little bit, was very important for us. Mari, yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, think, I think we really wanted to make sure that we started the book with those chapters which tell the story of Claudelise, whose whose brother and sister-in-law were, were, were killed 10 years ago. Um, Mala, who was arrested for his activism in Cambodia, and Yannick, who also has been arrested um, and was part of the movement for for Maasai rights in in um, Tanzania. But I think also just you know that on defenders trying to understand the different different types of repression they face, the different types of violence, the different scenarios. You know, what are they fighting for? Who are they? Um, really unpacking that a bit. Um, and then I think the next section goes on to talk about what we call dirty projects because they're the projects that we would almost, people often assume are are the focus of environmental defenders, right? That they're fighting against extractive industries and pollution from mining, um, expansion of of oil, you know, those sorts of projects that I think have a dirty image, environmentally speaking, and, and human rights-wise as well. Um, and, and then the next section was about what, what we see as often being framed as green projects, but actually also bring their own forms of violence and their own forms of repression of of local people, and, and that goes back to these cases of conservation areas that exclude local people. It also goes to the case of, of, of energy, wind turbines, um, wind farms in Mexico. You know, really trying to think about it, it's not just about the dirty projects and the extractive industries, but actually that things that are being labeled as sustainable and green can often lead to violence um, against local people and, and really repression of, of local people's interests. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it, both parts, uh, you know, explore this kind of imposition of projects. And um, this you know, third part, uh, green projects, I think relate to a growing uh, debate around, you know, what are the costs of this uh, green transition, sometimes called green, you know, extractivism or I call it sometimes climate extractivism, um, whereby um, the justification um, of those projects through the transition uh, further delegitimize communities that don't want to have them uh, 
you know, in the in the communities because they they're going to be suffering, and, and and very often, so the you know those are communities that sometimes are the most exposed um, to um, the the effects uh, of climate change, for example. Yet they have the least responsibility uh, for the, you know uh, emissions uh, that we have, and on top of all that, we now ask them <laughs> to just accept the fact that they're going to lose their land and, and local livelihoods uh, in order to fix the climate issue. So there's this kind of triple burden for these people. And I think for us, it was very important. And we also added in that section uh, things around um, conservation. So it's not that we are anti-conservation, but we are very much against militarized forms of conservation. And uh, we wanted to really emphasize uh, that. And again, uh, you know, one chapter, for example, talks about the fact that there are some extractive, uh, you know, projects that now justify and legitimize themselves by saying, "Oh, yeah, but we're going to do some conservation elsewhere." So there is a kind of biodiversity offset. But you've got two communities that are then affected: the one uh, where the extraction takes place, and the other one where the conservation is taking place. So that's the kind of things that we wanted to highlight: that it's not simply a question of dirty industries being imposed on, on communities and a bit of nimbyism, uh, but it's really a mode of imposition of some vision of how to fix the world, how to build a, a, a developmental future uh, that is in opposition to the values and aspirations of local people in very, very often now. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And one term I, I like that you use, I think it was in chapter 19, it was a green alibi where, you know, it, it's a, it's a, the, as you said, conservation as, as a way to both displace communities and, and then making it easier to, to gain access to, to minerals. And it's so interesting to see how, how there is this, this is happening across the whole the whole world, and I, I imagine that a lot of it is due to just the, the the logics of capitalism and the infrastructure of capitalism. But the 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 global perspectives that, that you bring um, juxtaposed with the with the individual and the the affective and emotion and emotional tolls that um, these these um, topics and and um, the the things you outline here are are really important um to to understanding i think all of this and i was i was just hoping you you might want to talk about maybe something like the i i know that you use atmosphere of violence throughout and and maybe just also touch on on the the invisible side of the violence as well as the visible side i think i think oh um yeah i i think this this question of the invisible versus the visible is really important um it's very often there's a focus on on the more visible the more direct violence the killings the the shootings the attacks you know those things uh we can measure we can see um but it is actually these things that are going on behind the scenes that often lead to um much deeper kind of more pers- insistent and persistent violence and that every all of the people that we've been working with and interviewing over the years are experiencing some form of violence and some form of repression um and that that can come from 
many different angles and, and, it, and you know the intersectionality of the violences that they're experiencing is really important because it is not just because they are um, an environmental activist it's also often because they they may be marginalized for other 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 reasons you know they're racialized they're 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 poor they might be indigenous they might be um you know there, there's so many different ways in which the repression and oppression can be um arising and and so it's really i think one of the things we were trying to do is is highlight that that it's not just the killings it's about the struggles and it's about the different forms of violence that people people are experiencing and suffering um that may come because of their gender it may become because of their ethnicity it may come because of the specifics of what they're fighting for um mm-hmm. yeah and and to add a little bit to this um we have to understand you know why is this violence taking place uh i talked about this idea of you know the imposition uh, but very often, you know, silencing is behind a lot of this. And there are many ways to silence uh, people. Uh, of course, we're, we think of the ultimate way of silencing as being killing. But what we observe very often, that's not quite what happens. It may intimidate people. Everybody would be afraid of dying. Uh, but there's often a lot of coverage that comes out of um, the killing. And as we've seen with the case of Berta Caceres after her death, uh, you know, the slogan was, uh, she's not been killed, she's been multiplied, you know, uh, because many people identified with her cause, etc. She was an indigenous activist in Honduras fighting against the dam. And so, we have to understand that sometimes violence is very invisible, but the silencing is there. And it starts all the way to, oh, people feeling like, well, maybe they could lose their job or they'd be a little bit outcast from their community or from their work environment or within government, you know, that uh, they may not see career progression as much if they become the kind of, um, you know, um, defender that we can imagine if they become... Uh, whistleblowers, if they join protests, uh, etc. So there, there's really a graduation. Um, and I think when we talk about atmospheres of violence, there are many different types of atmospheres of violence. And the one we're referring very often, and because that's the one associated with the murders, is places where there's a high degree of impunity uh, in a context where, as uh, Mary mentioned, uh, intersectional violence uh, means that some people... Um, lives are seen as as very cheap expendable it's part of the calculus of commercial operations uh, nearly uh, and it's a part of the reproduction of a colonial order uh, that has been there for hundreds of years uh, sometimes and so we're seeing these atmospheres of violence being um, you know kind of diffusing also uh, across different types of countries uh, where you know obviously, uh, the loss of uh, civil liberty rights uh, 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 become part of it, etc. So we wanted to have this idea of atmosphere. I think, Mary, you came up with the term. Uh, and, you know, as, as the idea that it's not fixed, it's not always visible, it's out there, and it, it kind of shapes the context, uh, you know, uh, in which these, uh, these things are, are taking place. 
Yeah, and I think just to to say, it's a, and it's about the fear that 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 those atmospheres can create. You know, Philip was saying that it's it's intimidation. It's not just you know when you kill one person or you attack one person or you threaten one person. It's not just that individual or their their group that experiences that. It, it's the fear that can reverberate across a movement, across a people, you know, across continents in some ways. If if um, so, it is this sense that it is more than it's more than the sum of its parts. It it creates these climates. In in Brazil, they talk about climates of fear, um, and it's very similar. You're creating these atmospheres of of fear and violence in which people really do not have the freedom to to protest, the freedom to live their lives in the way that they they choose to live them. Yeah, and, and going off of that, I, I wonder if you wanted to get more into the the gender aspect of of these these forms of violences that, that occur across um, the the world really. Um I mean I, I think I think one of the main main things that we can touch on there is that the types of of threats and the types of violence that 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 women uh, can experience for example can be very different um you know there's many cases of women who experience either threats of rape or or other sexual violence um there's also a broader you know the intimidation that they may face can be quite different than than what um cisgender men might face um i think we again it comes into the intersectionality of this violence you know that that it's not just about gender in terms of men and women but it's also about um transgendered individuals can experience um an extra layer of intimidation and an extra layer of violence um but i and i think that it 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 can often what we often see is a lot of strong women at the front of many of these movements who have this added layer of burden of, I don't burden, it's not the right word, sorry, but the added layer of responsibility of, of caring for their children and their families while also trying to care for their communities um, as activists. And I think, so there's been, there's been a lot though, a lot to say about the the strength though the strengthening of those women and and I think recently you've seen quite a lot of of women defenders coming together and 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 trying to find ways to to strengthen each other and empower each other um yeah anyway i'll I'll pass it back to you Philippe I'm not sure yeah so so when we look at you know who gets killed uh women are definitely in the minority it's about. 10%. But behind that percentage is the fact that uh, women are actually more exposed very often uh, because they're, uh, they're kind of not used, but uh, they are seen as being less vulnerable to uh, direct attacks on the part of the police or the security, etc. So ironically, they often put uh, forward, uh, even more so on the front line, in a way. Uh, and and it's, it doesn't mean that because they're not killed, they are not, you know, afraid and they are not psychologically hurt. And um, very often they take those leadership roles 
that are you know going against the patriarchy as well. So we've seen a number of examples where uh, those women are shunned by part of the community. So sometimes we imagine these communities as being all together against a mining project, for example, or against an agro-industrial project, a plantation. But that's rarely the case. Often these communities are divided. And it's often the women who think about the long-term consequences of the project. Very often also they are not the ones that will get the paid jobs for a few months or a few years. And so they have a thinking, a perspective that brings them you know, a little bit more in opposition. Yet it takes a lot of courage to not only stand against a company, but also stand against the patriarchy and the short-term interest of powerful people in your community. And so all this adds to the toll. Uh, what we've seen also uh, in, in some countries is, uh, like Colombia, for example, at some point, uh, well, there was a targeting of younger people. Um, so targeting the children and, or at least teenagers with the objective of hurting uh, not only that teenager, but also their mother, their family, the community. And mothers, of course, take even more of a responsibility about the safety and well-being of their children. So uh, that, uh, because they will be seen as bad mothers who, allow, you know, who let their children go to the protest, etc., uh, so um, that's an enormous burden uh, on women in particular. Yeah. And also, as Mary said, it's not only a burden, it's also a, you know, an emancipation. And some amazing women have come out of these struggles and took on you know, broader roles uh, as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and one other thing you say about the, uh, the idea of leadership in itself, which kind of contrasts and... I guess, um, plays into idea of community is that sometimes leaders become more vulnerable because they're willing to, to put themselves out there or they're seen as kind of, um, someone who's going to, to put themselves out there. And so then they become a target I, 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 for, for the violence. And so it's the, that, that idea of community seems like really, really important, but also very, um, unstable at times, just, just kind of as, as you both, yeah, and it's also about continue, you know, ensuring a certain continuity of the struggle. Uh, as a Chinese defender was saying, you know, uh, it's very unlikely he will get killed, but it's very likely he will be in jail for years and years and years or at a eradication camp, something like that. And so if the whole group is being picked up one by one, who is going to be there to, you know, push back? So... There's always this kind of calculation of, you know, how far to go, what is the risk entailed, and what does that do to the movement, to the community? Um, because the ultimate goal is um, sometimes to stop that project or at least reform that project, change it, um, and as a rights, uh, protect the interest of the community at, at large. And so it's very important that, uh, you know, these decisions to lead a protest, uh, uh, to go on a hunger strike, uh, to point fingers in newspapers, etc., to denounce, to give give names, is um, is taken you know 
with a broader view. And and sometimes uh, it doesn't happen. Sometimes there's just like a protest and it gets out of hand because it gets too heated and provoked by the police or on both sides it gets uh, quite violent. And, and that's sometimes when we uh, get death as well. Yeah. Yeah, and one other case study you present actually happens in the UK where there are... Um... It, the 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 portrayal of of environmental defenders are um, touted by the media in a, in a negative light, and I, I think Mary, you were you were in on this chapter. Would you like to to talk about um, that that case study at all? I didn't actually uh, write the chapter, but oh, I, I'm sorry. I I'm, it's okay. I'm I'm quite familiar with the the results of the study because it was carried out by a colleague of mine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this happens in the UK and it happens in a lot of places where you, the both the police and the media are very heavily involved in delegitimizing both individuals and and movements, right? So it's not, and I think one of the the important things that comes out of out of that chapter um, is that we think of the UK as a safe place for protesters, but even in the UK, there is violence against environmental activists and defenders, and there is violence both against them physically, but also, again, smear campaigns, right? So this is a a tactic that happens here in the UK, but it also happens in Brazil, it happens in Cambodia, it, happen, it happens everywhere, where, where either it's the dominant media or it's the government itself, essentially attacking the character of the of the people who are speaking out against and de- development as as the government or the the companies might want to see it happen and so um, that's one thing that that Claudelie Santos who is one of the the um, authors of the first chapter says quite a lot you know that that it used to be more common, for the for killings to happen right away, but now first they come for your character. You know they assassinate your character first. They accuse you of of all kinds of things, and sometimes it's of sexual harassment. Sometimes it's of of all sorts of other other things. Uh, in in the Philippines, the people are are labeled as communists, for example. You know, so there's many tactics that that governments and police are involved in in attacking the character of, of people and delegitimizing the struggles. Um, and that therefore then leads to a lack or a loss of support um, amongst the general public because they're painted as the enemy and not as actually the people who are trying to protect the environment for all of us. Yeah, and one other way I, I noticed that the... Um, environmental defenders are are, um, are undercut is through um, the irrationalization of, of local voices um, by withholding and or using like scientific quote unquote knowledge against um, against them um, and 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 it, it's interesting that both of both of you are you know from kind of the the this uh, you know Western you know, academia, or you've been affiliated with academia. Um, like, I like. Do you want to talk a little bit? Um, and maybe we could start with Philippe about um, just kind of this idea of of Western knowledge and and how that's being implemented, um, both in both 
ideological ways and infrastructural or developmental ways? Yeah. So ideologically, of course, there is this idea of, you know, the supremacy of Western science that is blind to other forms of ontologies and epistemologies. And so, you know, the, the funny thing is, yeah, the perspective of communities who have been creating those landscapes and being immersed in them for, you know, centuries, certainly generations, uh, is, is, is not often considered. And instead, a consultant that will come for two weeks, um, you know, may just... Um, give the get-go for the project, and, and that's what they're looking for. So there's this idea of dismissing uh, local uh, knowledge. Uh, the second thing is, within Western science itself, you often have a silencing due to vested interest, uh, the idea that uh, we're not quite sure, and so uncertainty can be used in very creative ways, etc. But we've seen that in, in many cases, including here in Canada, whereby it was, uh, you know, pretty evident that a major dam was a very bad idea, not only uh, economically, energetically, you could say, uh, but also geologically. Uh, yet, um, you know, uh, people at my own university uh, were kind of self-censuring their critiques, uh, in part because they had long history of collaboration with the hydropower energy provider here. And so going against the grain of a major project, I was not seen as good for the career, not nice towards the colleagues. But in private, these people would say, yeah, it's a bad idea and they should not go ahead. But nobody would actually you know, stick their head and, and go against it. So in a way, they were silencing Western science uh, uh, in, in their own way out of those uh, power relations and those, uh, those, those interests. Um, so structurally, uh, we can see that, um, you know, science is, uh, I think, very important. I'm myself a scientist. I believe in the value of science, but I also believe in, in the uh, value of uh, multiple ways of understanding um, so-called realities out there. That's the first level. And the second level, of course, is uh, even if the science uh, is on the side of a project, it doesn't mean that a project should go ahead because, after all, what we are talking here a lot is uh, the right of communities to decide what happens uh, in their territories and especially so for indigenous people. And so uh, there is a strange game at play sometimes whereby indigenous knowledge is going to be collaborating with Western science to come up with a more you know, kind of hybrid solution, but even that approach can delegitimize uh, the, the, the basic rights of the community to say no, and they don't need to have science uh, to back them up, unless, of course, the you know, environmental impact is the main uh, uh, reasons why they're opposing a project. But very often, uh, the environmental dimensions are just one aspect of, of resistance to particular projects. So it's important to understand this uh, you know, different types of science that can be done, the different forms of knowledge that are implied, uh, and also understanding that beyond all this is also intrinsic, intrinsic rights of decision-making uh, over uh, particular landscapes and, and, and communities. Yeah, thank you for that. And, 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 and to kind of go off of the, those intrinsic rights um, on kind of the other side of of, of the aisle kind of zooming out to looking at like NGOs and the idea of a 
of social welfare, particularly Western social welfare that would have been developed with early philanthropic um, organizations like the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers. Um, but they're also bringing in their own their own power dynamics and um, and and creating their own relations. And I don't know, Mary, do you want to do you want to speak on on that on on that kind of power struggle? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of, you know, one of the chapters or a couple of the chapters actually touch on this and, and we see, you know, the, in the green, the green project section, thinking about the conservation NGOs, for example, um, they paint a picture of, of being very green and very ethical and very many different things, all the good things. Um, but actually they are in partnership with, some of the biggest polluters, they, uh, in this essence, become complicit in in supporting the the greening of the the image of of our, of, of companies, you know, that are very polluting and, and destructive of the environment. Um, and so, I think one of the important things that comes out of a lot of the discussions with defenders on the ground is that they are very selective in who who they trust um, because not all NGOs have local people's and indigenous people's best interest at heart at the end of the day. Um, And while I don't think they set out to um, violate people's rights, what ends up happening is often that they do or that the companies that they partner with um, are are violating people's rights. Um, and so it's about this broader sense of, of justice that we need to hold the foundations and the NGOs accountable for their role in the violence and their role in facilitating or worsening um, the violence against defenders and other local local communities. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, there are a few things also that maybe you can touch a little bit about. Uh, touch upon this. One is this idea of uh, the NGOs being used by the companies also to compensate for the arms that an extractive project, for example, will do. And they come as part of the package of winning, winning hearts and minds, you know, um, and, and making all these promises. So that's one aspect where the complicity of NGOs is, is really quite crucial to the success of those uh, projects. Uh, and we know from the record that many of those projects actually uh, fell over the long term. The communities don't want to espouse the type of livelihoods that are being promoted, etc. They often also tend to reproduce the power inequalities uh, within those communities. Um, another aspect is sometimes when um, the, the NGOs are going to be pushing actually for a community to resist a project or to push for something to happen and um, in the face of difficulties they're going to withdraw and leave the community hanging high and dry Um, and and we've seen a number of occasions where uh, there were for example red plus projects so you know uh, carbon sequestration through forest protection with community forestry projects being kind of proposed to communities as a way to earn a bit of money, protect their forest, etc., in a context where the communities would be exposed to a lot of violence uh, for doing so. And uh, 
once things get more complicated, uh, very often the funders see that this is a problem with the government, so they withdraw, then the NGOs withdraw, and that leaves the community to fend for themselves. And, and, and the, pro, the, the kind of mode of um, engagement has often been such that those communities f- are not best, you know, in the best place. Uh, there's been sometimes been NGOs that push them to be very confrontational, etc. So um, that's why it's very important from the beginning that there's a good understanding between uh, communities and NGOs when they want to do something together, that the NGOs are not only the only one on the driving seat, um, because that can leave a lot of NGOs in other communities uh, in, in, in deep trouble later on also. Yeah. That being said, the, you know, the um, solidarities and the alliances that you know, national and international NGOs can provide are crucial to the success of many of these movements as well. So it's just need for a lot of you know, nuanced and careful approach in those relationships. Yeah, they're complex. Yeah, and that kind of leads me into to, to one of my final questions. Um, you, you, end the, uh, you end the book with a um, chapter on looking at the Geneva road, Roadmap um, 40-11 and the idea of um, an international cooperation and support of environmental human rights defenders. And... Um, they came up with some plans to to try and help this on a on an international scale, and I was just wondering, especially since your book is, although it's super contemporary and and, and up to date, I'm sure that even a lot of things have happened since. Um, I guess I'm not sure, but I'm curious if a lot of things have even happened since since you've you've written it and published it. Um, and and would you like to to take that first, please? Yeah, so this was a really a very good event, very uh, moving. It took place in the context of the Human Rights Council uh, uh, regular meetings um, and um, brought a lot of NGO, uh, uh, you know, human rights frontline um, environmental defenders and, and academics and, and policymakers, etc. So that small group really came up with like, the broad array of, uh, you know, recommendation, reviewing them, etc. But there were also a number of people like David Boyd, uh, who is a UN special reporter, with really the ability to push for things. So David, for example, was pushing for, uh, you know, the human rights for a safe, clean, healthy, and sustainable environment. And actually, that has passed. We now have that. There were a number of people from IUCN, uh, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And looking back at this, you know, the history of conservation, of course, we highlighted many human rights abuses against communities and not always siding with environmental uh, defenders. And um, a new resolution was passed last September, uh, Resolution 39, uh, precisely um, put... Uh, mobilizing the network of IUCN uh, for the defense of of defenders. So we've seen a number of very positive steps. At the same time, uh, we have seen the numbers creeping up uh, higher, Um, you know, a higher number of people getting killed. Uh, Still in the same type of countries, unfortunately, especially uh, Colombia. So, you know, this this killing takes place in relatively few countries, and the situation, as you know, in Colombia has not very much improved. So it depends also on, on the context on the ground. Uh, one of her uh, 
concerns is, of course, that with uh, the COVID pandemic, um, there's a lot of push on the part of governments to do fast economic recovery programs that are heavy on the infrastructure, extraction side, etc. And uh, we are afraid to see human rights, uh, you know, and environmental human rights defenders being kind of taking a, a, a little bit of a hit as a result of that. So the picture is, is, is not rosy, but we're saying certainly in terms of uh, international awareness, international texts, uh, you know, things are being strengthened. And Marie, you may want to add a few things. Um, I think mostly just to agree, but I, I and I think it's yeah, it's at the international level. I think we can see some progress and a and an increase in awareness of the importance of of environmental human rights defenders as as a category of of people who who need and deserve support. Um, but yeah, there is also a, a lot of concern about what's happening on the ground in many of the countries that COVID and the pandemic has been used both during during the pandemic itself as a as a excuse to um, weaken environmental governance, to weaken rules, and sometimes attacks specifically on defenders themselves. Um, and yeah, what happens now as they try to ramp up recovery, uh, what will that look like and what what will the impacts be on on defenders on the ground? Um, yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I think that's a good note to end on, except for our traditional last question here at, at the New Books Network, which is, um, what what's next for you both? I mean, you just, you you have such fascinating and and um, amazing amazing lives that I'm excited to hear and. Um, since we started with with Mary at the very beginning, uh, Philippe, would you like to uh, would you like to kick us off with this one? Yeah, so I'm I'm continuing to uh, work uh, on on uh, you know the production of environmental defenders. At the moment, I'm focusing my attention on ocean defenders uh, <laughs> because we talked about environmental and land defenders, but uh, we kind of missed a little bit uh, coastal communities in particular that are extremely exposed to these types of things because of course uh, the coast is a place where uh, we see a lot of intensification urbanization tourism project resource extractions and on top of it as you uh, may know the so-called blue economy or blue growth is kind of an international agenda it's a new frontier with deep sea mining with uh, more uh, you know wind farms offshore uh, uh, those types of things and so um, uh, it's it, I want to know a little bit more about them, uh, engage with them. Uh, artisanal fishing, uh, in particular, uh, is taking a, a major hit internationally, uh, in part because industrial fishing has been uh, so predatory and, and poorly regulated to some extent. And we see major investments on the part of countries like China, which are increasing the uh, distant water fleets in massive ways and investing in this traditional fishing extraction uh, in, in many countries. And so that's uh, one area on, on which I work, as well as uh, the climate movements um, and the role of defenders in, in pushing for supply side, uh, you know, so not only curbing uh, demand for fossil fuel, but also curbing down, uh, you know, the provision of fossil fuel to the economy. So uh, that's more or less what I'm uh, working on at the moment and with a number of, you know, little uh, activist projects on the on the side as well. 
Um, I guess for me, I, um, I've got a couple of <laughs> books that I'm working on kind of in my free time. Um, I've, I've left academia at least for now, although who knows, I may, <laughs> I may wander back in at some point, but, um, so I'm working part of my time with Not One More, which is one of the organizations that supports environmental defenders. So focusing a lot of my time specifically on Brazil. Um, but from a research side, I'm carrying on some of the research that was carried out through this Atmospheres of Violence project and a sister project, which was um, working with indigenous um, peoples in Brazil and specifically we have a smaller project looking at with working with um, indigenous women about their visions of, of what a sustainable future might look like. And uh, we've been working with five different indigenous leaders, including one of the first um, women leaders or chiefs of, a, of the Gabion people in, in Pará state in the Amazon. Um, really essentially the idea being to help to work with them about their visions. And we're compiling a book that will hopefully come out in both Portuguese and English um, to think about what they see as a better future and what the future should look like. Um, so that's kind of academic, but, but you know, it's, it's in that, it's in that gray area as I always tend to be. Um, and then the other book comes a little bit out of this, this work, uh, Claudia Lee Santos, who wrote one of the first chapters, um, has asked me to help her to write a book about her story and her family's story. So her family, you know, her, she lost her brother and sister-in-law. They were they were assassinated in 2011. But even before that, much history of persecution. Her great-grandmother was indigenous and was captured, um, essentially hunted and then enslaved. So there's a really long history of the struggle Um and so we've agreed to, to work on a book also of that story, of the story both of, 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 the, of, the, of the conflict, but also the struggle and how they're still here and they're still fighting and they're still, still out there fighting for justice and trying to protect the forest that, that has been their home for, for generations. Um, so those are my main kind of books, hopefully, that will that will come out eventually, but quite slowly, because I'll be doing them as a hobby instead of as a as a job. <laughs> well, they sound like both uh, both of your projects and, and what you have planned sound ambitious and powerful and, and very much needed. Um, so I I do wish you the both. I wish you both the uh, best of luck, and and if you if you do have any new publications, hopefully we can uh, we can have you back on the the New Books Network whenever whenever they do come out. Um, but but thank you so much for your time today. I I really appreciate it, and and your both your book and and being able to have the opportunity to speak with you is super super um, insightful. In, in terms of, of these very challenging projects and, and these very challenging times that, that we're existing in. So, so thank you so much. You're most Thanks. welcome. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Bye. Thanks for inviting us.